I had a thought about the transistors, and I waited a day or two before I um, decided to share it with you because I wanted to see if my intuition would correct me, and it has not. So it's kind of like a transistor, but it's not really like a transistor. I mean, we usually think of a transistor as a two-state device, on, off. And we also have a collector versus an emitter. But what if we... That's a digital way of looking at a transistor. A hundred years ago, they didn't have digital electronics. They had analog. Everything was analog. So if there was a, a transistorized switch in those days, it would not have been on-off. It would have been multi-state condition. And this also relates to an experience I had in which I mildly electrocuted myself, in which I grabbed hold of an insulated cord while my feet, bare feet was on a stainless steel plate that was the negative electrode of a negative ion generator intended to make the body the emitter of negative ions. Quite an interesting experience. And I learned how vo voltage can be stored in a dielectric, just as I learned later on that Eric Dollard said so, not the plates of a capacitor, but in the dialectic between them. And I learned it <laughs> firsthand. I got mildly electrocuted because the plastic surrounding the power cord was charged with um, a humongous amount of voltage. <laughs> and I was grounding um, that voltage out through my hand, ionically through the ear, air, to the grounding port, the bare grounding port that the plug did not make use of, and so it was bare, free access to it, and um, also the metal plate for the outlet uh, is screwed into the outlet box, so all kinds of avenues of grounding, and it just, um, it amazed, yeah, fortunately the air acted as a regulator to make sure I didn't get too uh, electrocuted, but they did warn us not to do it, and I went and did it anyway. <laughs> Don't stand on the plate with the thing operational and reach for the cord. Turn it off first. <laughs> oh, brother. So this taught me a certain lesson, and this is where this thought is going, that the copper tube does not break in the middle. It's not two tubes, it's one. And it has a bend in it it comes back up the other side. So it's two ends of a single copper tube that has the two copper spheres on each end. And at the bend point, or somewhere in the middle there, or it may be two bends, and it's in between the two bends, two right-angle bends, to make a kind of a U-turn. But in between those two bends, that little straight piece has a dielectric, if not a dielectret, in possibility, surrounding it of a certain thickness and a certain width and placed on top of or surrounding that is an aluminum plate and the aluminum plate is welded to the aluminum trunk line which goes to the other so-called transistor that is a continuous strand of iron wire making up the barrel shaped um, iron co uh, coil. Now obviously Nobody manufactures such a thing. <laughs> and because the iron is bare, and we're not dealing with electricity there so much as we're dealing with magnetism, it's okay. It doesn't matter. Whatever. 
just so long as it's the same situation, surrounded by the same dialectic or dialectet material, and the same aluminum plate uh, of whatever shape is required on top of that dialectic material connected to this other side, the other end of the aluminum trunk line. And that's how the current goes across the transistor, and that's why there is no collector versus emitter per se, because they've been shorted to each other. So how can one be a collector and the other be an emitter? Uh-huh. <laughs> kind of wondered why thematically there was none, no distinction. It's because there's no physical distinction. <laughs> they're united. They're shorted. Oh, well. So none of the three metals meet up with each other. The aluminum, the iron, and the copper, they are all separated by a dielectric spacer of sorts. Um, but all similar junctions between similar materials, uh, similar metals, are bonded by welding. And that's just really a supposition on my part. Uh, um, I wouldn't call it a speculation, but a presumption. I'd call it a presumption, because your resistance is going to be zero. And the galvanic response will be zero because you don't you're not dealing with a solder material that could um, prevent any kind of overunity or any kind of activity, let alone overunity, because it'll complicate matters in a way that need not be and should not be. You have to be very careful in, in the manufacturing of this thing or the construction, I should say, um, and. When I look at the construction of a single-phase induction motor in an ice cream-making machine for a kitchen, as a kitchen appliance that drives a, the kitchen appliance, you know, spins the uh, aluminum uh, bowl, shall we say, around in a circle, and then the um, paddle stays in one place to churn the ice cream inside that aluminum barrel or whatever it's called, um, and then the ice is between the aluminum barrel and the outer plastic casing for the cheap uh, ice-making machine, that motor, the starter coils, the copper starter coils are stout, bare, solid-core copper wire. Two turns around and through the middle of, with hoars bored through the laminated plates of the armature of the single-phase induction motor. Two turns and... The finishing turn looks like it's welded on top of the starting point of that band of copper core, making it very odd-looking, <laughs> to put it mildly, um, because it's not supplied by power from the AC line. It's supplied by power from the magnetic field of the armature, the laminated plates that are stacked together to create a square-shaped armature, square in every respects. And then a single winding is wound of a... Uh, yeah, a single winding of uh, enameled uh, magnetic wire is, is wrapped around one of the four legs of that um, square-shaped armature to provide the magnetic field. And um, a rotor is... A hole is bored through the laminated plate, shall we say or formed somehow, to with just barely enough space for the rotor to fit in, 
the squirrel cage rotor, which is mostly made up of solid magnetizable, ferromagnetizable iron. And just strips of copper are in there, in the shape of the squirrel squirrel cage, to um, provide a pathway for the eddy currents, I suppose you could put it, and a waveguide pathway. Anywho, um, it's a very interesting study. I've, <laughs> I've studied motors very little, and I think it's the only case I've actually studied, to tell you the truth, that I've taken apart and looked it over and examined it. Um, in any case, it taught me a lot. And so um, when I saw the welding of the starter coil, and they're on opposite sides of the um, armature, opposite to each other, so let's say they're at 12 o'clock and 6 o'clock and the uh, winding is at 9 o'clock. At uh, 3 o'clock there's nothing. Nothing there because nothing is needed there, I suppose, to run the thing. Um, and the rotor's in the center, sort of. It's really, it's, it's actually off-center, now that I think of it, which might be significant. Come to think of it, yeah, it might be. Anywho, um... I think I've talked myself out. Um, so I think this is an interesting concept. It shows I was vaguely on the mark, but not really on the mark. Um, it is like a transistor, but it's not a two-state transistor, because now you can have multi-states. Anything is possible. And that's the way it should be, because we're dealing with analog concepts a century ago. that we, They don't really have digital concepts. Um, there was no need to. Um, anyway, just thought I'd let you know. I don't think I've thought of anything else since the last recording, the last podcast, that would help modify the circuit and help bring us closer to somebody realizing a build, whether it's me or somebody else. More likely it'll be somebody else who'll beat me to it, and that's fine. But um, we do need guidance and help, and I haven't been much help. I try to um, be as much help as I can, but it takes time for the idea to gel in my mind, all the finesse, all the details, because I'm a top-down guy. I really don't work from the bottom up. I don't have any experience. I work from intuition, and that means I get the vague picture, and, and then it gradually becomes more precise and detailed as time goes by, either on my own or with the help of criticisms or suggestions by other people. So there you have it.